Chapter Two of China and the Chinese by Edmund Ploschut, translated by N. Donbert. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Holly Rushick. Chapter Two. Trip up the Tsukyung River. My fellow passengers and their costumes. A damaged bell. Female peasants on the river banks. I am caught up and carried off by a laughing virago. Arrival at Canton. Early trading between China and Ceylon and Africa, etc. The Empress Liu Tzu teaching the people to rear silkworms. The treaties of Nanking and Tianjin. Bombardment of Canton. Murder of a French sailor and terrible revenge. M. Beaucher and I explore Canton. The fates in honor of the divinity of the North and of the Queen of Heaven. General appearance of Canton. An emperor's recipe for making tea. How tea is grown in China. The Fatim Garden. A dutiful son. Scene of the murder of the Taiping rebels. The Temple of the Five Hundred Jinii. Suicide of a young engineer. Return of his spirit in the form of a snake. Well-built, comfortable steamers leave Hong Kong daily for Canton. I embarked in one of them one fine spring morning, when a fresh sea breeze was blowing such as gives new life to those enervated by too long a residence in the tropics. I did not see a single white face amongst the passengers, for European trade is all transferred to Hong Kong, now driven away from Canton by the burning of the celestials of the fine factories built outside the gates of the city by European contractors. My fellow passengers, all Chinese, wore loose garments of blue cotton, thick-soled shoes, and a skullcap, from which a long pigtail, in many cases of false hair, hung down the back, reaching to the heels. The crew of American sailors, as they navigated the vessel, kept a watchful eye upon the passengers, for though the latter looked peaceable enough, there had been more than one instance of the sudden transformation of inoffensive travelers into daring pirates, who, after pillaging and burning the ship, had made for the nearest shore and escaped the vengeance of those they had robbed. Before entering the Tsukyang River, on the north bank of which Canton is built, we passed the ruins of a fort dating from the time of the Dutch supremacy. Beyond it, the stream is bordered by green rice plantations, with little hills rising up here and there, surmounted by isolated pagodas of several stories high. On one of them, I noticed, standing out against the sky from the fifth story, the fragment of a bell, one half of which had been shot away by a ball from a French cannon. Great indeed must have been the astonishment of the Chinese posted on this particular pagoda to watch the movements of the enemy's troops when the projectile struck the sonorous mass of bronze and shivered it to splinters. The catastrophe must have been to them a warning full of sinister yet salutary meaning. The river rushes proudly along toward its final home in the ocean, but narrows before it reaches its actual mouth the water becoming yellow, as does that of the Nile at the time of its rising. Even without glasses, I could quite clearly make out several poor-looking villages, the houses with their dull red roofs, occupied no doubt by fishermen and their families. Oh, how different were the surroundings of these water highways of China to those of the Seine, the Rhone, and of the charming Gironde. How much I preferred even the Nile, which I had but recently left, to this so-called Pearl of the East, 
for in spite of the ugly black mud huts of the Fallaheen, there is something beautiful about the riverside scenery. I like the graceful date tree far better than the bamboo, with its self-conscious uprightness, and I considerably prefer the slim and supple Egyptian women to the clumsy, heavy-limbed female peasants of China, such as I saw on the banks of the Tsukyong dragging heavy loads beyond them as they strode along in a manner which made me doubtful as to their sex, especially as their faces were hidden by the great hats they wore. A few more turns of the paddle wheels of our steamer, and it stopped opposite Canton. In a moment, a virago, such as those I had been looking at with anything but admiration, was on the deck, and seizing me in her strong arms as if I were a delicate baby, she quickly deposited me at the bottom of her own boat, roaring with laughter over my embarrassment. I had no longer any doubt as to her sex, as with a few vigorous strokes of her oars, she ran her boat ashore, and with the same maternal care as she had shown before, she landed me upon the wharf of the little island of Hainan, where I was expected. There is no particular historic interest attached to Canton, except that it was the very first Chinese town to enter into relations with foreigners. We know that this opening of intercourse took place in the year 618 A.D., but whence the foreigners came is not so certain. Possibly some of them were from Ceylon, and undoubtedly others were from the continent of Africa, as proved by the fact that the elephant's tusks, the horn of the rhinoceros, coral, pearls, redwood, and medicines were brought into the city by the strangers, who received metals in exchange that is to say, copper, tin, and gold, and silk, especially silk, for it was manufactured in the Celestial Empire 27 centuries before the Christian era. It was Liu Tzu, the wife of the great emperor Kuang Ti, or the Yellow Ruler, who taught the people the art of rearing the silkworm and spinning the material it produced. The industry of silk weaving has brought such wealth to China that Liu Tzu has been raised to the rank of a beneficent genius, and is honored under the name of the Spirit of the Mulberry Tree and the Silkworm. In 1127, an edict was issued, forbidding the exportation of metal, and ordering all payments to be made from henceforth in money alone. It is recorded in Chinese annals that a considerably later date a French vessel came up the river, Tsukyang, and fired her cannons in an aggressive manner, so that relations with foreigners were broken off. In 1425, however, an embassy from Portugal resulted in the readmission of foreigners to Canton, and a century later the Dutch also obtained a footing in the city. English Monopoly of Trade They in their turn were, however, supplanted by the English, who practically enjoyed a monopoly of trade from the beginning of the 18th century until 1834. At that date, their prosperity began to decline, one dispute succeeding another, and in 1839, open war broke out between England and China. In 1841, Hong Kong was ceded to the former power, and in 1842, the Treaty of Nanking was signed, opening to British traders the five ports of Canton, Amoy, Fuzhou, Ningpo, and Shanghai. Fresh fiction was caused by the arrogant assumptions of the Chinese and the vacillating policy of the English, culminating in the War of 1856, the immediate cause of which was the capture by the Chinese of Alorca, 
or small hybrid vessel of European build with the rigging of a Chinese junk flying the British flag. After a fierce struggle, a peace was again patched up, but factories outside Canton had all been destroyed by the mob, and prosperity has never since fully returned to the city. It was not until 1860 when the Convention of Peking was signed, ratifying the Treaty of Tianxian, and anything like cordial relations were established between England and China, and since then these relations have been again and again disturbed. Before the bombardment of Canton by the unified fleets of England and France, every foreigner found within the walls of that inhospitable town was beheaded at once. Naturally, with the memory of all that had so recently happened fresh in my mind, I hesitated when M. Volcher, representative on the island of Hainan, of the Swiss house of the same name, suggested that we should go together through the streets of Canton in sedan chairs. I did not like to allude to the danger I might run myself, but I asked if I should not be exposing him to peril. No, was his reply. Your fellow countrymen have won the permanent respect of the people for all foreigners, and you will be able to boast on your return home of having explored the vast city with no other protector than myself. A terrible revenge. M. Vaucher then told me the following story. After the Allied fleets had taken possession of Canton, the commanders used to send a party of men every morning to get fresh fruit for the table of the officers, and rarely did a day pass without at least one Englishman being absent at calling over. Any sailor, who to satisfy his curiosity was foolish enough to leave his comrades for a moment, was at once set upon by Chinese soldiers and murdered in the open street. Vainly did the admiral of the English fleet threaten to make bloody reprisals if the authorities did not punish the offenders. The same kind of thing happened again and again. At last one day, five or six sailors belonging to a French frigate landed and made their way into Canton. As they turned into a street, they missed one of their party, and presently they found his headless corpse lying on the ground. When the crime became known to the French, the second-in-command of the fleet collected fifty volunteers, armed them with revolvers and hatchets, and landing with them, marched them into Canton. On arriving in the street where the murder had been committed, some of the men were told off to guard the entrances to it, whilst the rest made their way into the houses and killed all the Chinese they found in them except one, who, though he had already been hit by six bullets, calmly walked up the middle of the street without quickening his pace or even turning his head to the right or the left at the sound of the renewed firing. The leader of the expedition at last ran up to him and gave him a smart blow on the shoulder. The fearless celestial merely turned his pale face toward his assailant, looking at him without a smile. He did not even tremble in the grasp of his enemy. Touched by his courage, the officer spared his life, handing him over to two sailors with orders to do him no harm. After this bloody punishment, which was very hostily criticized by the English press of Hong Kong and Shanghai, Europeans, whatever their nationality, have been able to wander about unmolested, either alone or in parties, in the streets of Canton. I explore Canton. After listening to this tale, I had an eager desire to explore the town, which, since the departure of the Allied fleets, had rarely been entered by Europeans. 
I watched anxiously for the first symptom in the faces of the inhabitants of the hereditary hatred of white men, which had most likely been greatly intensified by the bombardment of the town and by the punishment inflicted for the murder of the French sailors, a punishment by no means excessive, terrible as it was. I am bound to add, however, that as M. Vaucher and I were carried rapidly through the crowded streets by our coolies in our respective chairs, we noted no hostility on the placid faces of those we encountered. The people stood aside to let us pass, and showed rather benevolent curiosity than insulting indifference. The Chinese children, with their round heads and strongly marked eyebrows, who are so aggressive and impudent in their interior of the country, here remained perfectly silent. Only the old women, tottering along on their deformed feet, paused in their painful walk now and then to lean against the walls of the houses and look at us in a mocking, though not exactly hostile manner. Our progress was only once arrested for a moment when we met a great military mandarin in a narrow street, escorted by some ten warriors, bailing their halberds on their shoulders. The mandarin stopped, and we passed without difficulty, giving him a military salute in return for his courtesy. I confess that this unexpected complacence put me into a very good humor, and after this incident I gave myself up without reserve to the enjoyment of my first visit to a Chinese town. Homage to Pak Tai By a lucky chance I had arrived at the very moment when the inhabitants were celebrating two of their greatest festivals. The first, in honor of the beautiful Pak Tai, the fair divinity of the north, was simply remarkable for the immense crowds flocking to the pagodas, crowds made up of bonzes, bonzesses, portly mandarins, cooks and barbers, vigorously plying their trades, aesthetes with effeminate faces, young girls full of delight at getting out of their palanquins for once, and at being able to totter about on the flagstones of the temples for a few minutes on their poor mutilated feet. When the gilded pedestal upholding the shrine of Pak Tai was completely hidden beneath the flowers flung upon it by the crowds, the worshippers all repaired en masse to see the theatrical representations which take place after the religious ceremony. Not until midnight did everyone go home, only to meet again the next day, when a great procession passed through the city, in the midst of which the venerated idol was carried with the greatest pomp. Some on horseback, others in sedan chairs, were many young boys and girls wearing the costumes in vogue amongst the heroes and heroines of the earliest days of the Celestial Empire. Many, too, were the banners of beautiful silk embroidered with various devices or inscriptions in golden letters, and still more numerous were the bearers of the large gongs, some of which were of such immense circumference that it took two strong coolies to carry them. All Asiatics love a deafening noise, and the delight of the Chinese may be imagined when the accumulated din of these great bronze discs becomes one continuous roar like thunder. The second fate I witnessed was celebrated in the Honan suburb in honor of Tian Ho, the Queen of Heaven, and the Protectress of Sailors. All the shipowners of the populous city of Canton, all the pilots, all the captains of junks and sampans, all the fishermen, boatmen, and boatwomen, in fact, every human creature connected in the remotest degree with anything like shipping or boats, were collected in front of the sanctuary of the goddess. 
Her statue, too, was covered with flowers, and, as in the case of the fate of the divinity of the North, a theater opened directly the pagoda of the Queen of Heaven closed. The stage was erected about a hundred yards from the pagoda, so that the devout had only to turn round to pass at once from the sacred to the profane. A grand drama. A grand spectacular drama, called The Marriage of the Ocean and the Earth, extended over twelve consecutive evenings. The only plot was, however, the presentation to each other by the betrothed couple of the vast treasures at their disposal. The earth began by a grand show of tigers, lions, elephants, ostriches, etc. In a word, all of the big animals which our ancestor Noah took with him into the ark. Then the ocean, not to be outdone, paraded in his turn his dolphins, his turtles, the vessels he had engulfed, his corals, and great bunches of all the most wonderful growths of his submarine gardens. All these marvels were, however, nothing but a prelude to the great final surprise, when an enormous whale reeled into view, and as it flopped about, shot out a great volume of water over the whole stage. It would be impossible to describe the enthusiastic delight of the spectators, who all shouted like madmen, How! Hoon how! Excellent! Perfect! And if M. Vaucher and I had not applauded too, we should have been stoned! The beautiful river on which Canton is built presented for many days a most picturesque appearance. I could wish those of my readers who love the marvelous, who enjoy looking at crowds and do not mind noise, no better pleasure than to gaze, if but for a moment, upon the pearl of the East at this fate of the protectress of those who do their business on the great waters, thronged as its surface then is with junks, dressed with flags, brilliantly illuminated flower boats, little vessels transformed for the nonce into miniature pagodas, gliding mysteriously along, as do the gondolas of Venice. I was told that on these occasions more than one lovely young celestial maiden is worshipped in these pagodas of a day, with a ritual very different from that of the public ceremony we had witnessed at the shrine of the goddess. Canton Industries Canton consists of a great number of narrow streets, each house in which is adorned with colored signs, giving a very quaint and charming appearance to the facades, especially of an evening when the gilt lettering on the red and black lacquer ground is lit up by the rays of the setting sun. As was the case in European towns in medieval times, and is still customary in the Orient, each district of the city has its own special industry and is closed at nightfall by a bamboo barrier. The cobbler's quarter seemed to me to be the most densely populated, a great multitude of workers, naked to the waist, zealously plying their trade, chattering like magpies the while. Close to the cobblers live the coffin-makers, who are even noisier than their neighbors, and quite as happy over their work. Yet another quarter, dear to the lovers of bric-a-brac, is sacred to the manufacture of porcelain, bronzes, cloisonne enamels, beautifully lacquered or delicately carved boxes in ebony, ivory, and other materials, plain and figured silks, etc., which are sent to Hong Kong for transshipment to Europe and America. You can, of course, get all these things without going all the way to China for them, and they are to be seen in Paris, in the Gimma, the Kirshi Museums, and at various Oriental houses in London and New York. 
Many Chinese are very wealthy and keep for themselves and their heirs the art treasures they buy or have inherited from their ancestors. In spite of the fact that you can see Chinese curios at home, it would be a pity to miss the pleasure of rummaging in the shops. The owner of those you enter will receive you with apparent cordiality, but at the same time with a certain distrustful politeness, and you will be carefully watched as you turn over the goods for sale. If you accept the cup of tea, which every merchant delights to offer to his visitors, and you seem to appreciate the superior quality of the beverage, you will win the golden opinion of the donor. For to the celestial, tea is a divine plant. The drink made from it, as a matter of fact, quenches thirst better than any other, not only in the heat of summer, but also in the extreme cold of the heights of the Himalayas, or of the desert of Gobi, where the traveler is exposed to the icy blast of the north wind. From the east to the west, from the north to the south, of the vast empire, we meet with the hospitable tea house. It is perhaps not quite such a fascinating place as it is in Japan, but beneath its shelter, the traveler is always sure of finding the cheering beverage, which will put new strength into him for his further journeys. There is not a Chinese poet who has failed to sing the praises of the precious shrub. Even an illustrious emperor wrote directions in verse, reproduced below in dull prose, for the preparation of a cup of tea and described the salutary effect it has upon the mind. Put a tripod pot, the color and form of which testifies to long service, upon a moderate fire. Fill this pot with the pure water of melted snow, and heat this water to the degree needed for turning fish white or crabs red. Then pour it at once into a cup containing the tender leaves of a choice tea. Leave it to simmer until the steam, which will at first rise up copiously, forms thick clouds, which gradually disperse, till all that is left is a light mist upon the surface. Then sip the delicious liquor slowly. It will effectually dissipate all the causes for anxiety which are worrying you. You can taste, you can feel the peaceful bliss which results from imbibing the liquid thus prepared, but it is perfectly impossible to describe it. Already, however, I hear the ringing of the curfew bell, the freshness of the night is increasing. The moonbeams penetrate through the slits in my tent and light up the few pieces of furniture adorning it. I am without anxiety and without fatigue. My digestion is perfect. I can give myself repose without fear. These verses were written to the best of my small ability in the spring of the tenth month of the year Ping Yun, 1746, of my reign. Signed, Qianlong an imperial tea-maker. The tea-plant is a shrub requiring very little care. A siliceous soil suits it best, and in it attains its fullest development. Great quantities of seed are sown in September and October, and when the plants are about nine inches high, they are transplanted and placed about 20 inches apart. When the leaves have reached their fullest development, they are gathered, carefully washed to remove any earth which may have clung to them and they are exposed to the rays of the sun. The day chosen for this part of the preparation being the very hottest in the year. In the evening, the dry leaves are taken up with every precaution against injury, placed in boxes, and protected from the air by sheets of lead. Millions of cases of tea thus packed are dispersed all over the world, but it is needless to add that the Chinese keep the best leaves for their own consumption. 
green, or as they themselves call it, white tea, is put into boxes directly. It is picked without any drying or other preparation. And black tea is produced by placing the leaves in a brazier over a slow fire, these leaves being constantly turned over with the hands by the men in charge of them to prevent them from sticking together or drying too quickly. When taken from the brazier, they are placed in a sieve and still further manipulated, always with the greatest care and delicacy. Lastly, they are once more exposed to heat in the brazier to give them the brown color so much esteemed by many consumers. It is in this last stage of the preparation that the skill of the manipulator is put to the severest test, for if the tea is too much burnt, it will have no taste at all, and if it is not sufficiently burnt, it will be bitter and heating. I forget now in whose house it was, but I was on one occasion stupid enough when the guest of a Mandarin to say I had once at the residence of a clergyman drunk an excellent cup of tea mixed with rum and sweetened with sugar. Sugar and rum, cried my host, who was terribly shocked. We must take care not to offer our best teas to you, for you would certainly not be able to appreciate them. The Farm Garden I stopped eight days at Canton, more than enough to visit everything worth seeing in that now uninteresting city. I saw the endless rice fields stretching away beyond its gates. I went to look at the French concession, where there is not a single French inhabitant, though the names of the streets, such as the Rue de la Fousée and the Rue de la Dordogne, and the Rue de la Charente, recall the vessels once manned by the brave sailors who had for a brief time sojourned in this remote Chinese town. One curiosity, which every visitor to Canton ought to see, is the so-called Fatim Garden, where each tree represents some fantastic animal, and in which prowl herds of pigs, more quaint in appearance than the shrubs tended by pale-faced young bonzes wearing yellow garments. The cemetery of Canton is of vast extent, and every year in the month of May, the pious celestials all flock to it in white robes to lay offerings of rice, fruit, and flowers on the graves of those they have lost. The gifts would be left unmolested for a long time, but for the fact that they are presented in the spring, just when countless birds are nesting in the branches of the lofty bamboos growing in the neighborhood, and who consequently look upon the rice and fruit as provided especially for them. It is not only after the death of those near and dear to them that the Chinese show the deep filial love for their parents, which is one of their most striking characteristics. The Peking Gazette gave a very touching instance of this reverent affection communicated to the official organ of the Celestial Empire by the governor of Shantung, which made such a sensation that it reached the ears of the emperor himself. Here is the story. A certain native of China, Li Xianju by name, whose father had died at Feicheng, immediately sold the piece of land he inherited in order to give a grand funeral in honor of his beloved and lamented father. The time of mourning had not yet expired when a terrible famine took place in the town where the ceremonies were going on. Provisions became so scarce and so dear that Li Xianju found himself quite unable to provide properly for his aged mother, so he decided to carry her on his back to another province where the ground was less sterile. This he did, begging his way as he went, and supporting himself and his sacred charge on alms alone. A devoted son. 
This model son, laden as he was, actually traversed the fabulous distance of 400 French leagues, finally arriving at Honan, where he and his mother settled down. A year after the poor mother was taken ill, and Li Xianzhu, fearing that she might die in a strange land, of which every Chinese has the greatest horror, resolved to take her home to her native country in the same manner as he had brought her from it. So he started back again with his sacred burden, begging his way once more. The two got back again to Fei Chong, at last, but had scarcely reached their home before the old mother died. It is impossible to tell how many nights the heartbroken son spent on the tomb of the lost one, but we know that, thanks to his pious efforts, the bones of his father were laid beside the body of his mother. A few days after the death of the latter, the grief of the orphan became so terrible that he wept tears of blood. He is now sixty years old, but he still mourns for his parents, and in the month of May, when the fate of the dead is held, he never fails to drag himself to the cemetery and place upon the tomb, according to custom, a bowl of smoking rice of gleaming whiteness. There are no month-yon prizes, such as those given by the French Academy for acts of disinterested goodness or surely this unselfish son would have received one. M. Vaucher and I went to visit the quay outside Canton, which was the scene of the massacre of a hundred thousand Taiping rebels after the defeat of the Hung Tzu Chuan in 1865. The ferocious Mandarin Ye had them all decapitated at the edge of the river Kwantung, their heads falling into the muddy stream. A Dutchman who had belonged to a factory in Canton at the time told me that he witnessed the terrible scene from his window and had been greatly struck by the extraordinary composure with which the victims met their fate. Motionless and with bowed heads they knelt at the edge of the quay, awaiting the fatal stroke of the sword. I had some idea, added the Dutchman, of sending the poor fellows some packets of cigarettes to cheer their last moments, but I should have been completely ruined, for their numbers increased every day. The tragic story of the Taiping Rebellion its extraordinary success at first, and its final suppression under Gordon is well known. In the two campaigns against the Taipings, the future hero of Khartoum fought no less than 33 battles, besieging and taking numerous walled cities, and changing the whole history of the vast celestial empire. Had the revolt been finally successful, as it had at one time bid fair to be, Hung, the enlightened leader, might have found a new dynasty and warded off for a long time at least the dismemberment of the once vast empire of the East, a Chinese pantheon. My last visit was to the so-called Temple of the Five Hundred Genii, containing five hundred grotesque gilded statues, taller than life and of surprising girth. We must not, however, make fun of them, for each one represents some celestial who has made his mark in art, science, or philosophy. In France, such a temple would be called a pantheon, and that is what it really is, a place set apart for the commemoration of the great ones of the past. In the temple of the five hundred genii lived a beautiful little water snake, which a bonza of venerable appearance tended with reverent care, feeding it on green frogs and cantharides. I tried to find out why he set such store upon it, and the following story was told to me. The river, from the banks of which rises the great city of Canton, often overflows, 
and the inundations caused by the excess of water do a great deal of mischief to the rice plantations. A young engineer was ordered to construct an embankment, but he must have done his work badly, for only a year after its completion, the river again burst its bounds, and the engineer in despair drowned himself in the waters he had failed to control. Yet another inundation took place after his death, and in the mud cast up by it upon the shores was found a little snake. By order of the viceroy, the reptile was taken to the temple of the five hundred genii, and a miracle at once took place, for it had no sooner entered the sacred precincts than the waters subsided. Everyone attributed their fall to gratitude for the kind welcome given to the little snake, and a long memorial on the subject was addressed by the viceroy to the emperor, which was at once published by the Peking Gazette. An explanation of the phenomenon was added to the effect that the little snake was really none other than the engineer who had committed suicide. There was really nothing surprising in the matter, for of course by his death the unfortunate young man had become a Chen Ching Tung Cheng Chan, or divinity of the river, and was anxious to repair the mistake made in his lifetime on earth by exercising a benevolent influence over its waters now that he had the power to do so. After the miracle which had taken place on the entrance into the temple of the little snake, the people had proclaimed it to be the genius of the water, and as such they venerated and cherished it. End of chapter 2